we knew so many homicides occurred in, in domestic violence. 35% of homicides com were committed in families. Well, you couldn't always predict who had as a weapon. So I first got into hostage negotiation accidentally in this violent interventions where uh, I was held hostage four times myself. Welcome to the Business Class Podcast, where we dive into conversations with alumni, students, faculty, and staff from the University of Dayton School of Business Administration. You'll hear career advice, conversations about ethical decision-making in business, and listen to stories from life on the UD campus. Here's your host, Dean Trevor Collier. Hello, and welcome to the Business Class Podcast. I'm joined today by George Kohlreiser, who's graduated from UD with a bachelor's degree in philosophy and psychology in 1967 and a master's in clinical psychology in 1973. George currently serves as Distinguished Professor of Leadership and Organizational Behavior at IMD Business School in Switzerland, where he is the founder and director of the High Performance Leadership Program for Experienced Senior Leaders and the Advanced High Performance Leadership Program for former HPL participants. He's the author of two international best-selling books, one that was translated into 19 languages, the other into 12. Uh, the first one was Hostage at the Table, How Leaders Can Overcome Conflict, Influence Others, and Raise Performance. And the other one is Care to Dare, Unleashing Astonishing Potential Through Secure-Based Leadership. He's also an international keynote speaker at the World Economic Forum and the World Business Forum in Davos. That is a mouthful. Thanks for joining me today, George. You are very welcome. It's very nice to be here. So I'd like to, to start our conversation with some background on, on you and your, your upbringing in Ohio your time at UD, and then the experiences that led to your, your current role at IMD and, and your engagement with, with senior leaders from some of the world's top companies. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about where you grew up and, and what you thought you wanted to do when you were a kid? Well, I grew up in Wapakoneta, Ohio, just uh, north of Dayton Yeah, on a farm. So I'm an old farm boy. And uh, I eventually ended up going to a seminary, Catholic seminary, in Brunnerdale. What I wanted to be was a farmer initially, <laughs> and uh, I ended up on a very different trajectory. So I uh, left when I was 13 years old. Those were the days in which you did your high school within that formation and left after 10 years. And uh, fortunately, <laughs> I was uh, connected to UD. And so, so you spent some time in the seminary, and, and then how did you, coming out of the seminary, end up landing at the University of Dayton? Well, I was in the Society of the Precious Blood, which was based in Carthagena, Ohio, which is also just north. And uh, there was a close association with UD. So I did mostly philosophy studying there. So it was a natural progression to move to uh, UD and finish in philosophy. But I realized when I was there that you don't have that many jobs in philosophy unless you want to teach. So I became very fascinated with uh, psychology. And thanks to several professors there, I moved over into psychology and I graduated with a double degree. And, and so what did you think you were going to do with psychology? What was the, the career well, trajectory the, you wanted? The, the, goal was to work in helping people. I had that as a foundation from when I grew up on a farm from both my parents. And I wanted to help through psychology. 
So it wasn't at that point so much clinical psychology until I decided to do my master's degree. And then I had a whole number of jobs in Dayton. I was uh, working with the Dayton Police Department, working with Goodwill Industries, the Methadone Clinic, the South Community Mental Health Center, uh, Good Sam Community Mental Health Center in the 5th District. I was just, after getting out of the seminary, trying to catch up, going so fast to make up for all those years that uh, I had lost. And uh, UD was then part of that whole process as I moved there and graduated in 67. Well, we'll, we'll come back. You mentioned your work with, with the Dayton Police Department. I want to I come back to that in a minute. But, but first, let's talk a little bit about your time, your time on campus. Uh, yeah. So you, you and I got to spend some time in, in person together on campus this summer. Uh, I imagine it, it looked a little different than, than what it looked like when, when you were here as a student. What, what do well, you remember a, about the old campus and, and what, what about the new campus? That's an understatement, a little different. <laughs> it was dramatically different. I mean, you can imagine back in 1967, uh, when I first went there in 66, uh, it was much smaller. The housing was, I wouldn't say dilapidated, but it was not as well taken care of as it is now. When you drive into the uh, the UD campus now, it's really clean, it's organized, it's so (laughs) campus-like. It's really a university campus. That's quite different than it was back in those those days. So many of our alumni they, they, they lived in one of these houses that, that you, that you called dilapidated that, you know, today, today they're, they're a little nicer and, and they kind of, uh, they, they identify a, a lot with that house. And, and we, I, I see many alums when they meet somebody from a different era, they say, Oh, where, where did you live? Right. And, and then they can connect based on, on that. Do you remember where you lived when you were? Absolutely. Absolutely. I didn't live in one of those houses. Uh, I was staying in a, an apartment on Highland Avenue, just down from uh, UD, okay. and, and then eventually to Smithville. And I rented a room, and in some cases, another student who was coming from uh, the seminary as well, Hank Sweeterman, and I roomed together very often. So I would visit the campus virtually every day, but I never actually lived on campus. You can imagine it was a, a bit of a transition to go from uh, those nine years in the seminary where you wore only a casket, uh, cassock, and where you didn't really need money to be suddenly thrown into this incredible world. And the riots happened in Dayton in 1966. Oh, wow. And that was a big, big moment, uh, as well as in 1967. I remember 67 with the NCAA uh, UD was uh, in the final against Los Angeles, and mamma mia, was there a heartbreak when they lost that. And it was a good image to see both the grief and the coach who really directed the whole community to be proud of what they had actually accomplished, not to look at the negative side, but look at the positive side. But it, it was a very, very sad moment, but an extremely joyous moment. You can imagine the celebration in the streets. I, I've heard many stories about the celebrations <laughs> uh, from, from that time. And, you know, we, we've, the Dayton community has always strongly supported the basketball team. And, and I, yeah. I think t- today we've, we've got another 
you know, great leader in, in Anthony Grant and, and everybody, everybody in town's excited for the basketball season to, uh, to get started. So thinking, we're thinking all proud back, to be flyers, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Go flyers. So thinking back, you're coming out of the seminary, you come, you come to UD, um, you know, UD's got this, the, the, the Catholic Marianist charism. Yeah. Did, did that, did that influence or impact any, any of the decisions you made uh, throughout your oh, career? Absolutely. I mean, there were other possibilities, but it was a no brainer to go from Carthagena, a major seminary where I was getting credit for the philosophy at UD to go and finish two more years to get my a bachelor's degree. And there was a wonderful chapel on campus that I visited often. I mean, you can imagine after 10 years, how important that religious foundation is. And then there was the Marianists who have this very special philosophy of serving people. And that just fit with where I was at. And so I felt a connection to the Marianists and to the whole community of what UD stood for. And, and how did that, how, has that carried with you through, throughout yeah. your, your career? That's a very good point. I think I learned in having a feeling that I had a calling to be a priest. And then I realized that was not for me. I took 10 years to get out. And once I got out, I left with that deep sense of a calling, a mission to help people. And to this day, my focus is in serving people in teaching leadership, the whole idea of servant leadership and have leaders understand that they're they're building other people up. They're, they're helping people come to areas of, of potential that they don't fully understand. And leadership is a very special opportunity. And so I feel that mission, that kind of calling in a very different way. So after your time at UD, you, you went on to earn a PhD from The Ohio State yeah. University. And you, you mentioned earlier your, your work with the Dayton Police Department. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about how, how does a, a police department utilize the expertise of a psychologist? Mamma mia, those were the days, uh, Dean Trevor. <laughs> we, uh, I, I was, had a great opportunity to join both the Montgomery County Police Department and Sheriff Gary Haynes was uh, then the sheriff, along with uh, the, the, the Chief Eichelberger in joining the Dayton part, Department, working with the hostage negotiation team, and eventually working in the academy, training police officers in methods of de-escalation. I had an internship at Dayton State Hospital, which was, wow, an experience of, in and of itself working with schizophrenics. And I brought all of those experiences around conflict management. That was my focus in getting my master's degree and actually was the thesis, how to deal with conflicts in the psychiatric wards, how to be able to deal with these psychotic patients rather than just medicate them to death or to throw them in isolation. And the police were very interested in those days in community policing. So I became part of a project by Salem Avenue on the fifth district, working with the police and the community mental health center at St. Elizabeth hospital. This meant riding with the police, engaging the police. And when they had a domestic violence situation, uh, either Tom Ruth, Dr. Ruth or myself would go into those situations with the police and try to mediate because we knew so many homicides occurred in, in domestic violence. 
35% of homicides com were committed in families. Well, you couldn't always predict who had as a weapon. So I first got into hostage negotiation accidentally in this violent interventions where uh, I was held hostage four times myself. Not because I was stupid, at least I hope not, but because you can't predict who's going to have a weapon under a couch or get a, a knife out of the, the, the kitchen. Or in one case, I was asked to go into the emergency room with uh, the lieutenant's backing to talk a very psychotic man down out of being a hostage. And he ultimately put the scissors to my throat. The interesting thing is I liked it. I liked doing hostage negotiation. And if I might say, I was pretty good at it. I survived four times being held hostage myself. So I became a part of developing the hostage negotiation systems in the U.S., eventually developed by the FBI, the New York Police Department, which is already doing much of the hostage negotiation earlier. And as you know now, there are hostage negotiation teams all over the U.S., as here in Europe and other parts of the world as well. I'm very proud to be a part of that foundation, foundation which was actually started around the early 70s. So I've got your your first book here, Hostage <laughs> Hostage at the Table, which you you, you so generously signed for me. Um, it, it, and in the beginning of that book, you you talk about th these experiences that you had, um, th these four times that that you were personally held held hostage. For for our listeners, how did you take those experiences and 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 the the teaching and the methodology that you used as a hostage negotiator and translate that over to to help business leaders? Well, here's the point, and I think you know this very well, that command and control, authoritarian leadership can only get you maybe temporary results or maybe not even temporary results. So a hostage negotiator has to create a bond with that hostage taker, even if you don't like them. And through that bond, you're able then to understand the pain points. Happy people don't take hostages. So what's the pain point? What's the grievance? What's the loss? Empathy requires the ability to connect to that loss and you understand it. And then the concession making. With those three uh, skills, tasks, you're able to get a 95% success rate. But you can't, can't tell the hostage taker to come out with an order. You can't, they'll say, okay, then we'll send in the SWAT team. Come out or we'll send in the SWAT team. No, you have to give them choice. And leaders have to learn how to do that. It is one of the most advanced forms of leadership that we know to influence people, get them to change their mind in 95% of the cases. It's, so that's it's what we're teaching in, in leadership development as I've traveled around the world and developed this high-performance leadership program uh, here at IMD. So when, when did you first sort of have this idea that, that I can take what we've been using in hostage negotiation and apply it in, in, in a business setting? Well, it evolved over time. And actually, that book is a summary of what I was learning and teaching from a whole variety of situations. Uh, I started a police stress management program to do post-debriefings after police shootings or near-death experiences and so forth, understanding the role of grief and understanding the role of emotion in helping people get over trauma. And so 
it became a part of mediation. And that was really my focus to be a mediator. And ultimately that became my focus in my uh, PhD dissertation. I did mediation uh, and conflict management as my master's thesis. And probably you don't know, but I had two of my thesis professors die within a week. Oh my God. Dr. Rancarello, absolutely the most brilliant Italian psychiatrist you could imagine, or psychologist you could imagine, and Dr. Uh, Ronald Noland. And they were on my thesis committee. Dr. Noland died first, and, and Dr. Rancarello had a heart attack about a week after. They were very close friends, and I'm sure he died of a broken heart uh, process. So I I learned from that also, having worked with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and others in the grief process and Carl Rogers, how to bring in mediation, emotions in a way that people can understand how to influence other people. And eventually that led to an article on the role of hidden grief in leaders. And we know there is so much about leadership that has to do with human psychology everything from motivation to being able to get over unresolved emotions that block or create blind spots in leaders. So it was a natural progression from conflict management. I also became a clinical psychologist and licensed psychotherapist and moved from that arena into the mediation process and the conflict management in organizations because there were so many quests. How do we solve conflicts on our teams? And so what, what was your first interaction with, with IMD? How did you end up in Switzerland? Oh, boy, that's a story in and of itself. So <laughs> I was working here in Europe beginning in 1979. I had a center in Dayton called Shiloa out on Shiloh Springs Road. And we had I had a team. I was a director. I was a founder and director. We had uh, like nine therapists doing a lot of group therapy. And uh, <clears throat> I moved from there to starting to work in Europe to train psychotherapists. And then the interest really became in conflict management. So then I got on the radar with uh, IMD when they asked me to substitute for a, a professor who was uh, ill and I had a good result. And so they asked me back. And before I know it, they asked me for uh, to be a part-time professor. And within six months, a full-time professor. So that happened in 1998, and it was a natural progression from the conflict management to leadership. And tell me a little bit, your role at, at IMD and, and, and how that sort of led to the, the high-performance leadership program. The high-performance leadership program originated after we had a very successful program called Mobilizing People. This was for young people to learn how to lead teams, how to be leaders, develop the leadership. So the dean at that time, Peter LaRange, wanted to have an advanced program. And his idea was to bring in different professors from UIMD to teach their particular focus. And I said, I don't think that's really what advanced and, and senior leaders come for. They don't want to be entertained. <clears throat> they need some emotional experience, some impactful experience. So he was sort of shocked and asked me to then come up with a prototype. So I did. And that was offered in 2001. One time. 
it was very successful. Looking at the mind's eye, how people connect, the bonding cycle, the role of grief, the role of secure base, dialogue, conflict management, negotiation. And then they wanted to add a second and finally a third. And today we offer it 10 times a year along with two advanced and companies are offering it within their own organizations. We have several companies who they want to bring it into their organization directly. And it's a full with 60 top leaders in each program through June. June is now filling up with waiting lists. It's a phenomenon that blows my mind, actually. It blows my mind as well. So you've been you've been running this for 20 years. Can you share? Yeah. I know some of this is private, but can you share some of the some of the companies that you work with? Oh, yeah. So we're working with companies all over the world. So everything from Philips, ABB, uh, Nestle, of course, Roche, the pharmaceutical companies here in Switzerland, in the U.S., uh, Mendelis, uh, the chocolate company out of Chicago, Blanchard, small companies like Blanchard in North Carolina, the big uh, Caterpillar company. Uh, so IMD is very, very much on the radar of companies. So we, it's an open and program. So we get people from all over the world. Before the pandemic, we had a lot of people from Asia and the Middle East. Now we're coming back, uh, although uh, China is still locked down, but going yeah. back to Singapore because we offer the program in Singapore as well. So just about any of those big 500 uh, uh, companies uh, have been to IMD. So, you know, tell me what it's like to be a, a, a rural farm boy from, from Wapakoneta who's now traveling the world uh, delivering seminars. It's humbling because I should be driving tractors. <clears throat> I was an expert in parking and driving wagons and getting wagons into narrow spaces, uh, plowing fields. It is a miracle. I'm very blessed. I met some of the greatest people that there are who are sponsors, mentors, Roger, or, uh, 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 Carl Rogers. I met Carl Rogers. Uh, Warren Bennis was a dear friend, a mentor. The books are both in his oh. series. There were so many others. So I was blessed and I was always curious. When I graduated from UD with my master's degree, and I had to work my way through. So I was working on weekends. I didn't get a scholarship or my family didn't have money to pay. So I had to pay my way. And I borrowed money two weeks after I graduated to go be with Carl Rogers in California. And for those of you who don't know him, he's the founder of New Humanistic Psychology, one of the most brilliant psychologists. And I worked with him for three years. I was always curious. And when young people ask me, how do I learn different talents as a leader. I say, go be with those people who inspire you and learn from them directly. And so I stand here with, on the shoulders of many, many people. And uh, I'm really blessed to have put this into both a book and to uh, uh, book it into a workshop as well. Two, two books, two books, two fact. books. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm holding the second book. Okay, care, care to, to dare. dare. 
And I'm going to, I'm going to read a passage, uh, not from the book, but on, on the back, uh, you've got sort of, um, you know, nice commendations from, from other, uh, authors and, and, and business leaders. So, uh, I'm going to read one from, uh, a piece of one from Tom, Tom Peters, uh, co-author of In Search of Excellence. He said, I wondered if George Colreiser could create a worthy sequel to his masterful hostage at the table. And, and then he goes on to say that, that, you know, you, you, you've, you've surpassed it. Um, and so tell me when, when you think about writing a second book, right, you've, you've already laid bare the, the insights that, that you've gathered as, as a hostage negotiator and many of the things that you've done uh, as a professor at IMD, you know, what, what did you, what did you think you had that, that wasn't in the first book that you wanted to deliver in the second book? That's a very good question because the first book is bringing hostage negotiation concepts into leadership, how leaders can never be a psychological hostage because you can be a physical hostage, but the same principles to get 95 success rate, 95% success rate in physical hostage taking can be used in psychological hostage taking, where you're a hostage to someone else or even to yourself with these internal negative states. So I thought conflict management would be the most interesting part, but it was not. It turned out people wanted to know what the secure base was. That was one of the pillars. So I, along with a colleague, developed a research, and we, de- we researched a 1,000 executives from all over the world of what it meant to find that psychological safety through a secure base that they would have for themselves and that they were as a leader giving to others. And we came up with those characteristics of secure-based leadership and put this into the book on how to create psychological safety, how to be a secure base and covering those fundamentals that are now so important in teams and organizations. You know, I I love the the title care Care to dare. And it, it reminds me, I was sitting in a, in a room, we, we've got a, an advisory council that, that helps to support the, the school of business. And we brought our, our MBA uh, curriculum to them and said, hey, we're looking at making some tweaks, doing some updates. You know, what do you think is essential that, that needs to stay in the curriculum? What do you think, you know, we, we, could, we could pull out? And we were going on, around the room and people were sharing, sharing their thoughts. And one person said, you know, there's lots of University of Dayton alumni who are excellent leaders. There's, there's tons of them. Uh, we, we tend to create them. What is true of all good leaders? And th- their answer was they care. Yeah. Caring. Right? How caring so should a leader be? A hundred percent. How daring should a leader be? A hundred percent. You got to do and both. For, both because many leaders don't see caring as something that's important, but it is. Even if you have to give tough feedback, even if you have to fire someone, you can still have a state of caring. And what we do in HPL and why it's so powerful, Dean Trevor, is that we bring people to understand the foundation of their leadership. What was their relationship with their parents, their grandparents, the teachers, the the early experiences that influenced them? And we see that there are many who never experienced what it meant to be a caring person. Or we see people who never learned how to take risks. And so they are handicapped in that they have this internal barrier. They're a hostage to themselves. And the goal is to free them. It's so simple to do. 
by getting into the emotions and being able to reconstruct the brain to go from playing to, to lose or playing not to lose to playing to win. So that's what we do in a week is bring people through a dramatic transformation. I've got a, a staff member who works works here for me in, in the, the dean's office, and we were getting ready for annual reviews. And, and this person said, I've, I've never had one. I've, I've been here for seven, eight years. No one's ever given me an, an annual review. And so I, I started feeling a little nervous, right? I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to shock this person. This person's not going to be able to handle it. So I, you know, spent a lot of extra time thinking through the, the, the feedback and, and, and the, you know, some of the constructive criticism that, that I was going to provide. And so I provided this person with this feedback. We sat down, we talked about it. And at the end of the meeting, they said, thank you. I was really scared. I didn't know what this was going to be like, but now I have direction. Now I know what, what you expect. And I, and I thank you for, for, for sharing this, this feedback and this input with me. I wish somebody would have done this earlier in my career. Wow. Congratulations. <laughs> this is an example of someone who wants to be a high performer. If you want to be a high performer, you got to get feedback and you got to get tough feedback. And the best high performer is the person who comes in in the morning and says, hey, boss, you got any pain for me today? Not because <laughs> they like pain, but because they want to grow. And that takes you out of your comfort zone. And it's very important to understand how people don't get enough feedback. And leaders are too nice. We teach that niceness is lying. It's not saying the truth. Kindness, yes. Kindness is always respectful, but you can deliver tough feedback and be kind and how to be able to get people to see that feedback, even negative feedback, um, leads to growth out of the comfort zone to try daring. That's where leaders have to be daring. And it also taps into the emotional area. We often hear, are, are there negative emotions? Well, no, there are not negative emotions. There are destructive emotions. There's a time for anger. There's a time for sadness. There's a time for fear. There's a time for joy, the primary emotions. But leaders often don't deal with that. And especially the grief. We had three major suicides here in Switzerland in the last few years. The CEO of Swisscom the CFO of Zurich Financial, the CEO of Zurich Financial, all with hidden grief connected wow. to organizational stress and grief uh, with one being connected personally. You see, we have to have leaders be able to deal with emotions. And it's a no-no in many organizations, how to balance cognitive activity with emotional activity. So we do a lot to teach people to understand that we are emotional beings. Who happen to think, not the other way around. Right. And avoiding the emotion is going to take you away from understanding motivation. You have to connect the pain points in your employees, in your suppliers, in your customers, in your all those around you. Absolutely. So highly, highly recommend both of those books. Now, for, <laughs> for you, you, George, and in, in, in what would be one or two books on leadership not written by you? that you would recommend to somebody that, that wanted to be a future business leader? I think Warren Bennis's book on becoming a leader is a classic. It's not a large book, but it has the core. 
uh, or Dan Goldman's book on emotional intelligence. Dan's a dear friend of mine. Uh, and he has put this together in a game-changing idea of emotional intelligence. And Warren has really uh, put it all together on becoming a leader. Awesome. Thank you. Um, while we're on the topic of, of, of advice, what advice would you provide for young UD alums or, or current students as they're considering their career path? Know what you desire. Know what your dream is. If you cannot identify what your dream is, what your desire is, why not? Are you living the life of your parents or someone who tells you how to live? Desires are natural. Dreams are natural. Pay attention to those. And then find secure bases. People who you can model. People who care to help you develop. And find people who are going to be honest with you. Give you tough feedback. And develop the talents that you need in a particular role that you want to do. And it should have meaning and purpose. We know that in business, you have to make money if you're working for a for-profit organization. But those people whose primary motivation is money end up not being happy at the end of their life. It's meaning and purpose. What do you find as meaning and purpose? And um, my son and I have started an organization called a leaders, Coal Reserve Leadership Institute to take these concepts into youth and to those areas with NGOs who cannot afford the, the, the training that the top business schools offer around the world and what, what will help them develop that talent. So Andrew Colreiser and myself are trying to take this caring and daring philosophy at a deeper level. Find someone who dares you, find someone who's caring, and don't shy away from pain because pain, although the brain hates it, you have to be able to teach your brain to like pain. Sports figures do this all the time. Uh, doctors do this, musicians and so forth. So you, you just mentioned the, the Cole Reeser Institute. Tell us a little bit. Can you give us an example of, of some of an area where you, you're going in to help? Well, we're working a lot with Mendelese uh, in the lower level teams. The top level can, can afford to come to IMD, but others cannot. With the Red Cross, with Doctors Without Borders, other organizations who want this care to dare philosophy or the whole process of being able to influence leaders by not being in command and control, how to be able to lead by listening to the followers and using these hostage negotiation concepts of turning an enemy and an adversary into an ally, how to be able to create these bonds, even with people you don't like and understand, uh, the process as you build this from the higher levels in the organization down to the lower levels. So George, is there anything else you'd like to share with me or, or any, any questions you have? Well, I would like to ask you a question. Okay. May I? Yeah. yeah, please. What do you see as Dean at, at UD? What the leader's big challenge is in, in developing your students? Here they are with dreams of the future. What would you say the biggest challenge is in helping them develop? That's a great question. There's, there's, there's lots of challenges. Uh, I, I don't know that this is the, the biggest, but the first thing that comes to my mind is that a lot of the students, and some of this may have been sparked by the comments you just made about, are, are you living out your parents' dreams? 
uh, a, a lot of our students come to the university having been developed in a in an educational system where they're they're being prepared to take exams, right? The 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 national assessments that students are taking in specific grades, and so they come into our to our classroom and and they they want to know what do I need to do to get an A. We we have we have some phenomenal students that that come in that are extremely intellectually curious. The average student that comes into the university today is not. They, they're, and it's not that they're not curious. They've just been trained that when they go into a classroom, they need to memorize certain things that they can regurgitate on an exam and and, and get a grade. And and that's not the way business works. And, and that's not the way that our business school works. And so trying to get those students to think through, hey, we're here to help you learn how to learn. We're, we're here to help you solve problems. We're, we're not here for you to, to memorize this. Um, you know, yes, there are some uh, some equations in finance that you'll need in, in your career if you're going to be if you're going to be in the finance world. But oftentimes, you're going to face an unstructured problem, and your boss isn't going to say, "Hey, go do these five steps." Your boss is going to say, "Hey, here's a challenge we're facing. What would you do?" And they need yeah. to figure out how to go research the problem and come up with solutions. So, so getting them early on in their career to start yeah. thinking that way to say, "How do I how do I solve problems? How do I how can I be a better learner?" eventually is going to help them be a better leader, in, in my opinion. Bravo. That, that's excellent. Because a lot of young people are focused on this intrinsic motivation, getting the grade, getting the career, getting the job. And that's understandable because they have to build their identity. They have to build who they are and feel like they can accomplish something. But at the same time, they have to be able to know what is the meaning and purpose. How do they feel doing what they're doing? What emotion do they want to feel and can they use? And as they go through life and develop this trajectory of lifelong leadership, it's going to change. Their identity is going to change. They have to say goodbye to the old identities. And I think one of the advantages of UD, as I think back through my own life journey of leadership, is that it's small enough that you can connect to the faculty. I remember some of the great, great discussions in the classroom, but also outside the classroom as compared to Ohio State or Harvard or Stanford or the other really big schools, you can connect to the professors and the, the bonding between the students leads to this idea of dreams, of being able to change the world, being able to offer something beyond making money or doing something that is going to extrinsically give them rewards. And the crisis in the environment, the crisis around the world in in all kinds of areas is leading us to come back to say, leaders change the world. How do you want to change the world, even in your own small way? And many kids have grown up from high school and childhood with that orientation, achieve, achieve, achieve. And so they end up depressed, they end up uh, in addictions, or they end up getting sick. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, I, I always when I'm talking to, to prospective students, families that are trying to figure out where their son or daughter is going to go to college or, or the student themselves, I really do think UD is the perfect size. We're, we're right in, in, in the middle. We're, we're, yeah. we're small enough that they can have that connection with faculty and staff. You know, hopefully yeah. most of our students are going to find the, the, the secure base that you talk about in one of their faculty or staff members. Um, but we're also big enough to, to offer uh, a, a breadth of, of different curriculum of, of you know, different majors and different programs, different experiences that they can have 
so we have almost all the offerings that you would get at a large school like in Ohio State, but you, you're you going to connect with faculty, you're going to have small class sizes and, and, you know, have some deeper engagement. Bravo. When I came to visit you, you're right. I realized how much of a secure base uh, UD was for me. Coming out of the seminary was a traumatic transition. I bet. A major transition. And I had the professors there. I had fellow students. I I felt this as a secure base. The dining room was a very special place because you could actually talk with professors. You could talk with other students. And I had tears remembering this because I never really appreciated how important it was. I was so busy living life, going on this trajectory of doing so many things, not appreciating what UD brought into my life. And to all and all the alumni who are listening to this or students, please appreciate what a secure base is. And I felt such a deep gratitude when I came to visit. Uh, I stood there with tears, being fully grateful for the opportunity to have been there, including remembering good old Kramer's, uh, which was, <laughs> was one of the bars that in those days we frequently visited. Well, you stole you stole one of my one of my questions, George. Is I, I I like to ask my guests if you if you had one place in or around campus where you could go eat, where would you go? Oh, it was it was clear clearly uh, Kramer's. <laughs> I mean, uh, it wasn't just for food; it was for beer and other things. But it was a socialization. It was UD was a family, yeah. But Kramer's was like an inside of a family, and you just felt at home. As, as you went there and all the different activities along Brown Street and Stewart Street and uh, when and, and the NCR, which is right across now, devastated, which I think is going to be uh, part of a UD uh, expansion. It's all part of uh, our campus now. Yeah. It, it's amazing to see how you have grown. And I remember the days when there was a struggle. Will UD survive? Will UD really exist? in 20 years, 30 years, you have proven how to be able to think of the future and be able to bring about a dream. Somebody has got those dreams. We've had and some I excellent alumni leaders. Were a big part of it. Absolutely. We've had some excellent leaders. We've got great alums. Uh, for any alums listening, if you haven't been back to campus in a while, come see us, shoot me an email. We'll, we'll take care of you and, and give you a tour. Um, but George, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. I really Really enjoyed uh, listening to you and, and hearing more about about your books and your your growth from a, from a farm boy to to the seminary to to becoming a, a distinguished professor at at, at IMD. Um, yeah. So thanks for thanks for joining me. Thanks to our listeners. You're uh, welcome. You'll, you'll can I say can I say one thing? If Absolutely. Any of the listeners want to connect to me. I have a lot on social media. I have a, 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 a georgecoreser.com with lots of videos, lots of lectures. Uh, uh, LinkedIn, uh, TEDx talks. So there's a whole lot out there and I, I will respond to anybody who is curious about any of these ideas. So for, for those of you listening, it's, it's George, G-E-O-R-G-E, Colreiser is K-O-H-L-R-I-E-S-E-R.com, right? Right. You got it. All right. So check him out and uh, check out the books. Uh, really enjoyed having you with us today, George. And, and for all of our listeners, please, uh, Join us again next time on the Business Class Podcast. Go Flyers. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for the Business Class Podcast. If you'd like to engage with us further, 
Please follow us on social media. Our Instagram and Facebook accounts all use the name SBA. You can also email the Dean's Office with questions or suggestions for future podcasts at sbadean at udayton.edu. No matter where you are on your career path, we are proud that you're part of our Dayton Flyer family.